Thank you, Lawson, for that very gracious and discreet introduction. I, uh, I appreciate the discretion. I came to Asbury um, right out of the Jesus movement and found some other wild-eyed Jesus followers here, and uh, we just kind of glommed on to each other, and it, it, I think it took the seminary a while to kind of shape us uh, and uh, work, work its uh, blessing upon us, but it did, I am immensely grateful uh, for the experience I had here at Ashland Field, uh, Asbury Seminary. <laughs> it's kind of fun, you know, I hear people making the, that mistake in reverse all the time, but anyway. Um, so I wasn't nervous, actually, Lawson, until you started to, uh, to talk but, uh, about <laughs> litters and critters and all kinds of things. But uh, I am profoundly grateful, and it's just, this is a great privilege. I, 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 I have to remember, one of the things that I remember about that wonderful time was uh, Dr. Oswald on the first day of a class in Acadian with just this look of shock and awe and said, 14 people taking Acadian. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which speaks to, to his influence and impact, and uh, he has always been for me uh, the model uh, of what it means to be a scholar in the service of the church. Uh, I remember also with gratitude Dr. Bob Lyon, uh, late professor of New Testament here, who taught me that love and justice are tightly bound. The title of a book published in July of this year and which has received a lot of attention announces the end of white Christian America. The author, Robert P. Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, um, uses that phrase, white Christian America, uh, as a metaphor, so that the whole title is a bit extreme. He's not really talking about white Christian America when you actually read the text. He's referring to white Protestant America. And the ending that he talks about is an ending of what he has uh, gathered from his own research and from various other demographic data, the end of Protestant influence, white Protestant influence in America. The days when uh, uh, that group of people who set, uh, white Protestant America set the agenda, created the structures, uh, set the value system for this nation. We're the leading voice in shaping uh, who this nation is as, as a nation, one nation after God. That group of people now finds itself, Jones argues, in the minority. No longer in a position to pretty much dictate what should be talked about and how it should be talked about, and no longer in a position to uh, influence powerfully uh, the public mind. So, uh, as I read him, he really wants to present uh, white Christian Protestants, that group that he talks about, with a reality check. 
even though, he seems to say, uh, this group has been the dominant voice uh, in American Christian discourse and in our national discourse from its beginnings, uh, that time of power and influence is gone as the nation and the church itself becomes more and more diverse. So that, that position and power is gone, and it's not coming back. He's primarily interested, however, in the impact, not so much in the reality check, the impact that uh, this loss of power and influence is having on white Protestants, both mainline and Protestant. And one particular survey question that he lifts up is, is illuminating. His researchers asked, since the 1950s, do you think the American cultural way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse? The responses were evenly distributed. As many people said, it's changed for the better, as said, it's changed for the worst. But when those responses were broken down in terms of religious affiliation, a striking divide Emerge, emerges between white Protestants and all other religious groups. Seven out of 10 evangelicals, six out of 10 mainline Protestants responded for the worst. With corresponding for the better responses from all other religious demographics. Which tells Jones in a way that the changes that we are experiencing culturally and which seem to be accelerating within the church and within the nation are a cause for lament for some, but liberation for others. No question, it's been a rough 50 years for the evangelical social agenda. Despite our best efforts, evangelical attempts to prevent moral and social decline have produced few victories many disappointments, removal of prayer from the public schools and nativity scenes and copies of the Ten Commandments from public institutions, Le the legalization of abortion, the proliferation of pornography, uh, the, 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 the explosion of teen sex and, and teen promiscuity and of sex and violence in the media, and, and now same-sex marriage transgendered restrooms, and it seems like we were losing that battle as well, everywhere. Confusion, anxiety, even in some quarters, a sense of desperation as the moral fabric of our nation and even of our church seems to be unraveling. The biblical text before us this morning stands at a pivotal juncture in a period of profound change and transition in the life of the people of God. The books of Samuel relate that transitional period in which Israel was remade from the ground up. As 1 Samuel opens, Israel is a tribal society united by covenant, but configured by alliances and regional differences and petty jealousies, kinship ties, one's commitments to family and clan 
and tribe are the glue that holds the tribal society together. And in times of crisis, God raises up and empowers leaders, judges, who, with varying degrees of success, rally their countrymen, defeat Israel's enemies, and restore the people to a state of well-being. The God of tribal Israel is a God who is on the move, never stays in one place, abides in a tent. Israel, during the period of the judges, follows a God who speaks when he wills, moves when he wills, and who has done so since the nation's very beginning. It's been that way since the time that the, that the nation was constituted under Moses. 1 Samuel opens, however, against the backdrop of a long and intensifying degeneration of this social system. We read about this decline, skillfully narrated in the book of Judges, which takes us from the heady days of unity and victory and harmony and alignment with God under Joshua and tracks a steady deterioration, a fragmentation of the society as leaders become more and more unsavory and ineffective and the, the nation begins to come apart until the book ends in a horrible melange of, 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 of scenarios of betrayal and theft and idolatry and rape and massive kin on kin violence that the nation seems to turn in against itself. On the other end, as we come to the end of 2 Samuel, the structures and beliefs that have defined Israel from the beginning have been completely remade. A monarchical system has replaced the tribal order. Loyalties have been redirected from kin to a king. A new system of leadership, a dynastic monarchy, has now been set in place. There's a rudimentary bureaucracy to organize the nation, a military to defend it, a capital city to unite it. And Yahweh no longer chooses and empowers leaders as occasion demands, but instead has given a charter to David whose heirs will rule Israel by virtue of their descent. And Yahweh, for his part, has parked his RV permanently in Jerusalem. And there are plans afoot to build him a proper house. He is no longer on the move. He's settled down and has promised that he will be here forever in this place. And that, that produces a new theological system centered on Mount Zion that is moving Israel's faith into new vistas and possibilities. But in between, things are pretty messy. 1 Samuel begins and signals the, the pivotal point in which the old is, is disintegrating and making way for the new by juxtaposing in the first few chapters two sets of parents and children. Hannah, 
faithful woman who dedicates her son Samuel to Yahweh's service, and Eli, the priest, who does little as his sons Hophni and Phinehas blaspheme the Lord. Eli and his sons, like the tribal order they represent, are on their way out. Priests stood at the very center of Israelite life and faith. The moral and spiritual center, they gave stability to the nation. They ministered within structures and systems that connected the nation to its past and provided a measure of continuity with that past. They taught Israel about the boundaries that were necessary to maintain and preserve for any culture or society to flourish, and particularly for the people of God, to maintain their identity and their purpose in the world. The rituals that they performed, the traditions that they held to, uh, gave the nation equilibrium, kept the nation in a state of well-being. Eli, however, is listless and apathetic. He doesn't care anymore about the boundaries. He's cast in consistently passive terms, sitting down, watching, lying down. When we first meet him in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, he's watching Hannah pour out herself in prayer to the Lord, and he thinks she's drunk. This is a priest that doesn't recognize prayer when he's looking at it. It's the clue that he doesn't see things well. And if this person at the center of Israel's faith and belief is not seeing things well, the nation is in trouble. Things are coming apart. And then there are his sons who blatantly mock the Lord and show no respect for the boundaries, the very basic boundaries that separate the holy place of God from the common space of Israel. Then there's Hannah, Samuel's mother, the recipient of God's grace, who dedicates her son to the Lord and who sings a prophetic song in which Yahweh speaking, in which she sings that Yahweh is about to turn the whole order of things upside down. She sings of a God who is at work within the swirl of events. A God who will bring down the powerful and elevate the powerless. A God who will even empower His King and exalt the horn of His anointed one. Hannah, at the beginning, speaks what no one, through the inspiration of the Lord, speaks what no one in that time can see or even conceive. God is already way ahead of the game. God is already at work in this time of disintegration, bringing about and setting in place a new and different system to enable the people of God to continue on and God's redemptive work to continue through them. Prophets were those people who consistently challenged the nation to change, urged the nation to a new vision, a new word, and a God-directed future. And so here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have these two sets of parents and children, the old and the new, the priest and the prophet, in point and counterpoint, coming together at the point of our text today 
in the persons of Eli and Samuel. Together, in a time of silence and darkness. Did you notice how the the biblical writer sets this whole scene up? Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. Few people are hearing God speaking. Few people are receiving a divine vision. We're in a time in which God seems rarely to be speaking. There is no compelling vision. Religious expectations, perhaps, are low. We continue. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. Actually, the Hebrew says in his space, his place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So there's a contrast here. Eli is staying where he has always stayed at night. He's in his place. But the young minister, Samuel, is reposing in the holy place of God. He's in a different place within the abiding presence of the Lord. And as the narrator adds, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So against the backdrop of this flickering lamp in the middle of the night, we meet this young prophet. While he's lying in that space, while he's reposing in the presence of the Lord, God calls him. He hears a voice. We're only told that the voice calls his name, identifies him. We don't know if the voice was muffled. Certainly Samuel thinks that it must be Eli. So he responds immediately, even though Eli's somewhere else and asleep. Hineni, which translated means, yo. And he runs over to the sleeping Eli. Then says, you called, what do you want? Eli probably very groggily says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Doesn't seem to occur to Eli that there is anything unusual in what this young lad has come to him because it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. He's a priest. He's a tired priest. He's an old priest. And he has his ideas of how God speaks and how God acts and the system through which God makes his word known. And people speaking in the middle, hearing voices of God in the middle of the night, that doesn't fit his paradigm. Go back to bed. Now, there are are stories all over the ancient world of what happens to people who, who sleep in temples. God speak to them. And if Eli knows this, 
<laughs> he doesn't think it's relevant here. It just doesn't fit. It's not within his expectations of how God is working. The lamp of Yahweh had not gone out. Yahweh is calling in the darkness in an unexpected, unconventional way, summoning a new servant to initiate a new work that will remake the nation on the heels of the, of the nation's disintegration. Yahweh again called to Samuel for a third time. Those of us who've heard the voice of the Lord calling us know that sometimes we don't recognize it right at the beginning. But God can be persistent. God wants to make himself known. God wants to make himself understood. And he will work with us and uh, flex our expectations so that we'll hear and understand what God has to say. So when Samuel comes to Eli the third time, Eli realizes that Yahweh has been summoning the lad. So the old man gives the boy some instructions. Go back, lie down, and this is what you should say. Speak, Yahweh. Your servant is listening. The instructions are important. All that Samuel knows of God has come from Eli. Samuel has been ministering faithfully at the temple in Shiloh under the tutelage of Eli. Eli has been his mentor. Eli has taught him about the Lord, even though Eli has neglected to do so with his own sons. But it's important for Samuel to hear this word of instruction from his mentor. It's a way of reminding him of his connection to all that Eli represents. Eli's house may be on its way out, but the core of Israel's traditions, its doctrines, its teachings will continue through the priesthood. God has re rejected Eli's house, but God is not dismantling the priesthood. All that the priesthood represents will be continued. So, this word has an empowering effect on the young servant, on the young ministry. Samuel still needs Eli's guidance. And Samuel will be that bridge because Samuel knows the old ways. He knows the traditions. He knows the teaching. He knows the doctrine. He knows the core of Israel's faith. And he will be able to carry that through even when the nation is remade. So, as he has done before, Samuel does what Eli told him to do. And this time, however, the story takes a dramatic turn. Yahweh himself enters the scene. We're told Yahweh came, literally Yahweh came and stood and called. 
Few details. We're not told what Samuel sees, what he's experienced. We're only told that Yahweh comes and stands and gives him a hard word to speak. Yahweh this time makes himself present with the opening up of the young man to the Lord, with the recognition that God is speaking to him. The young man opens up and God does not just speak. He comes and stands with him and gives him a word. And this will be a hard word, but, but from this time forth, Samuel will know that the Lord is with him. And what he does and what he speaks will come from a profound relationship with the Lord who has called on him as his servant, as his leader in a new time, and, and to take God's people in new directions. So the word that Yahweh reveals to Samuel reinforces the difficult message that all that has been, in a sense, is coming to an end. Eli's house, the priesthood, uh, is not coming to an end, but will be remade and reshaped. Because Yahweh says, I'm going to fulfill against Eli everything I've spoken against this house from beginning to end. Those words echo the words of a prophet that were given just prior to this passage, who proclaimed. So there, there are these hard words of endings enveloping this calling of the new prophet, priest. In announcing the end of Eli's corrupt house, Eli announces the end of the, the whole system, the social system that Eli represents. And Ensuing events confirm that. The ark is captured. Eli's sons are killed in battle. The glory of Israel departs. And Eli himself, by this time completely blind and grossly obese, dies by falling off his chair and breaking his neck. The nation goes on. Tribal Israel has run its course. The Israel of David flickers faintly on the horizon. Whether and to what extent the end of white Christian America has come, there can be no doubt that mainline and evangelical Protestantism is being shaken to the core by the force of sea changes of culture and demographics. The white Protestant consensus that has historically held our nation together and directed culture and values and society does in fact find itself losing control. It seems as if the whole world is caught up in wave upon wave of change. So what we're talking about here in our country, we see reflected around the world as the whole world seems to be coming apart at the scene. Imperial, the, the world defined by the imperial powers and imposed by boundaries is tottering. We see profound, deep, dislocations, migrations, disorientations, all over. 
People having to deal with the encroachment of the foreign into the familiar in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways that people are dealing with the loss of a world that they grew up in, that they were accustomed to. Change confronts us at every turn in the form of volatile economic and political situations, exploding birth rates, rising sea levels, hotter temperatures, burgeoning death, concentration of wealth, and the distrust and disrespect given to peacekeeping institutions. And that's to say nothing about the dizzying change brought about by accelerating advances in technology and information, smartphones, driverless cars, genetic engineering, and who knows what's coming down the pike. And we see the human responses to this sense of loss and dislocation and disorientation all around us. The sense of being under attack. The anxiety, apprehension, and anger. The agonistic words and rhetoric. The hunkering down, the turning inward. The ugly humor, the determined attempts to shore up the boundaries, protect turf, try to regain control, to restore things to the way they were. The, the ever-present impulse to hold on to something as this world seems to be coming apart. In such a time, the world needs leaders. The church needs leaders who are connected to the traditions who minister and have ministered, who are well-schooled in the doctrines, the traditions, who know the core of the faith on the one hand and are prepared to carry that forward, but on the other, know that God may be speaking in new ways and unconventional forms and have prepared themselves intellectually and spiritually to hear a new word from God, a word that bespeaks a vision that only God knows right now and that can only be dim, dimly glimpsed in this kind of darkness and chaos and things that are hard to see. In these times of, of change and an, anxious apprehension, the church needs leaders who can help people lament what is lost. Young Samuels, who know that God, there is no divine hand-wringing. There is no divine befuddlement. God is not dismayed about what's going on, but instead is deeply at work, is present, and is already working His redemptive purposes to prepare for a future that none of us can envision. In these turbulent times, the church needs Samuels who can bridge the old and who are ready to listen for the new. Who know that the Holy One of Israel is in control. Who can help befuddled Christians <laughs> avoid practices and attitudes and perspectives that are not honoring to the kingdom of God. On the one hand, Christians who respond to all of this change by saying, ah, why fight it? I should just give up. Or Christians, on the other hand, 
who say, who, or who, who are so caught up in anxiety and apprehension that they seek political solutions for moral and spiritual questions, who are captured by the anger and the rhetoric and the political polarization and the infighting that characterizes our society and who present that to a watching world instead of being a people who exemplify the love of God. Today, Samuels know that the lamp of God is still burning God has not left us to our own devices. It doesn't depend on us. God is working. And God may just be working in some new ways and toward ends that we cannot even comprehend in this moment and in this time. So in these times of turbulence, in these times of change, we can ask, where are the young Samuels? Where are the Samuels that God is raising up? Those listening children who return again and again to the holy place of God, who repose in front of the, the abiding presence of God. May the Lord raise up listening children whose prayer is always, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. O oh God, our Creator, who laughs as the nations rage, who sits enthroned over the nation, who sits enthroned over the flood, raise up leaders in this place and throughout the world who are well-schooled in your ways and prepared to listen for a new word and embrace a new vision who counter the counsel of chaos and confusion with the good news that our God is reigning, that our God is in control, that our God is with us and working, who speak with boldness your words of hope and challenge. We pray this in the name of the one who has overcome the world, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.